Hello again. I'm Richard Figge, and this is for Reading Out Loud. Thank you for joining me this evening. A couple of weeks ago, a friend sent me a story by a writer who was too little known. Haniel Long was born to missionary parents in Rangoon, now Yangon, in Burma, now Myanmar, in 1888. His early years were spent in Pittsburgh, where his father was a Methodist minister. After graduating from Harvard, he worked briefly as a reporter for the New York Globe. He hit his stride in 1911, when he began his teaching career as a professor of English at the Carnegie Institute of Technology, where he became one of the truly great and inspiring teachers of his day. When ill health forced him to retire in 1929, he left Pittsburgh for Santa Fe, New Mexico, where he continued his writing of both prose and poetry. I confess I'm not a great fan of fantasy fiction, but I find tonight's story enchanting, a celebration of the powers of the imagination and the breaking of myth into the prosaic world of the everyday. The professor in this story can dream. He is a fugitive, it has been said, from the living mythology of the present, of which he is a glorious part, and at times a professor can realize a dream by setting his students on the quest for literature, the world of the passionate mind. Who is this ambiguous man Greenlaw, this professor, this poet? The Professor of Dreams by Haniel Long President Burbage was inclined to be discouraged. Was college education a success or a failure? If a success, how came it that among his students was never a poet, a dreamer? History had indicated a certain usefulness for such persons. Colleges, thought President Burbage, should produce them now and then, if only out of reverence. But how? As he thought of such matters, his heart grew heavy. One day he was aware of a stranger. Where he was at the time, or what he was doing, he could never afterward remember. Somehow his path had crossed another's, and his suddenly hesitant eyes had beheld a young man with indelineable features. The stranger introduced himself as Greenlaw by name, a writer, a traveler, a teacher of the art of dreams. Burbage was pleased with the young man, and they conversed, though whether for minutes or hours the President was later unable to calculate. The upshot was that Burbage tendered Greenlaw the professorship of dreams, and that Greenlaw accepted. Dr. Greenlaw had escaped the hand of time, as one would put it. One felt that he was not so young as he appeared to be. Indeed, he appeared regrettably young. But to grow accustomed to his youth was not to grow accustomed to him. He was apart from his youth, was more than youth, and how, unless he had somehow duped time. His was the lurking smile of centuries, which waited and waited. It was a smile hard to abandon, a smile which, when one saw it no more, left the world celibate and poor. His eyes, even more, made one suspect Greenlaw of years fraudulently obtained. They were not contemporary. The Woolworth Tower crumbled before their gaze. In them the jungle grew upon the streets of Nineveh, and the ancient sea beat on its ruined shores. The young man could hardly be mistaken for a commercial traveler selling electric flat-irons. The streets of our age 
were not at home with him. His speech was that of nations and of ages. His clothes, but no one ever looked. Horses and dogs liked him. He had ways of enticing. President Burbage had said to the young man, Observation, imagination. These, above all, I want my students to see, to feel. Go at the matter as you desire, but produce the results. You are a man after my own heart, returned Dr. Greenlaw with his slow smile. The teacher kept his students from slumber. Sometimes he entered the classroom through the window with an agility that made him admired. Sometimes, wishing to stretch his legs, he would say, Let us walk out to the wood and talk. Dr. Greenlaw opened pages of the heritage of literature which had never been opened in a classroom. Where he obtained the old volumes, the time-stained manuscripts, no one knew. Before his students he unrolled the fabulous, the beautiful, the tragic. He kindled the imagination. Leaning upon the broad desk, his face toward his class, he would read a ballad with commentary that made the students vibrate to dialogue dead three hundred years. He would rehabilitate a demigod, a god as old as history. To his classes, Prometheus, with the vultures at his breast, became a fierce symbol. One day the doctor appeared with a strange lady in a leafy hat, who had come, he said, from the ends of the earth. The visitor smiled oddly. Then she spoke to them as follows. Lads and maidens, it does not matter that the university is built on the profits of iron bathtubs, that the town is the junction of railroads, that it has such and such a number of hotels, garages, and warehouses. It matters not at all that you sleep in beds, eat at tables, that your teachers make you study, that your friends and parents give you advice. What does matter is that you live in the light of the sun and its companion stars, and shrink not from the moon of dreams or from shaggy music in the woods at daybreak. Youths and maidens, nothing can harm you so long as you are will-o'-the-wisps, animated alibis, averted faces, dwellers in your own wildernesses, saviors of yourselves and others. She smiled oddly again, and the class, which had hardly caught the import of her words, smiled oddly back. A dark-haired boy in the back row looked at her and quivered. Greenlaw's students began to write, and they were not frugal with their fire. The teacher read aloud to them with spirit the best of what they wrote, pointing out how the description of a certain ghost could be made more disturbing, how the headlights of a doomed motor-car could be brought more uncannily to bear on the lurking terror of a midnight road, by what verbal insinuations the mood of the woods in autumn could be thrust into the mind of the reader. The students withdrew more and more from the everyday world, the neighboring streams, the little hills, the elm-trees along the highways, the moon, began to have for them an agitating import. One boy wrote home of a conversation he had held with the night, and was withdrawn by his father, a manufacturer of dentifrice, who put the boy under the care of a physician. 
a girl sent her landlady into hysterics by narrating to her truthfully what she had heard voices say under her eaves at daybreak. The boys went about with Dr. Faustus in their pockets. Girls recited to one another Shakespeare and the dirges of Lee Poe. The booksellers were pestered by orders for rare and unheard-of volumes, while the best-sellers of the day, conveniently at hand, lay unsold. Other teachers began to complain. One touch of imagination made the whole university tremble. Late nights made it impossible for Dr. Greenlaw's students to be prompt at early classes. In afternoon classes they were apt to sleep. Surreptitiously reading Hydriotaphia, The Marriage of Heaven and Hell, or The City of the Sun, they survived lectures on the history of American business and the psychology of salesmanship. For Dr. Greenlaw's class, that uncertain teacher became the college, and the world from which he had abducted them was superseded by literature, the world of the passionate mind. But when Dr. Greenlaw was alone, walking restlessly before his fire on cold November and December evenings, or stamping his heels before a bookcase with a hovering hand unable to choose where any choice would exclude so much, he would say, It seems to be getting rather long. Is the seed being sowed? he would ask himself. When he had glanced through the latest sheaf of papers, he would run his hands through the locks that vined above his forehead and murmur, Not yet, but excessive stimulation in an American college cannot differ from excessive stimulation in the groves of Thebes or the gardens of Baghdad. Before the evening passed, he habitually wandered into the night along the bank of a river where there were great trees. Late pedestrians might have seen his ambiguous form there, and heard him whisper in a voice like wind-swept trees, What is your substance? Whereof are you made, that millions of strange shadows on you tend? He came back sometimes as late as daybreak. His landlady said he slept amazingly little, occasionally not for three or four nights running. It was beyond her how a body could get along so. Yet Greenlaw was always alert, as resurgent as the dawn. Before school he would select books from his shelves, and perhaps a picture or two from an overflowing store. As he did, he would say with that most perplexing smile, Mixed draughts of stranger potency, wine that never grew in the belly of the grape. By Zeus, I shall make these youths stagger, whether I persuade them to my ends or not. The doctor little guessed to what extent the liquors he distilled had affected his students in their other studies. He hardly knew by sight his confreres of the faculty, but it had pleased him had he known how Rogers, sent to the board in calculus, stood like an idiot, his tongue forming the words of Rosalind, I should shake them off my coat, these burrs are in my heart or how behind the dark brows of young Burbage, the president's son, Sancho Panza jostled Falstaff, and Desdemona wept upon the bosom of Scheherazade. Of these things he knew nothing, nor did he meet young Burbage prowling about among the trees at night. 
he never heard of the landlady who had hysterics, or of the slender lad who conversed with the knight, and was therefore under the doctor's eye. Otherwise it is doubtful whether he would have said absently to his class one morning late in March, At dawn there were cloven prints in the soft garden ground beneath my window. Yet I have found no cloven imprint on all you have written since last September. Young Burbage changed his attitude, and searched his teacher's face with a sidelong eye. The days grew longer, and the first flowers bloomed in the wood. Breezes soft with moisture and the smell of springing vegetation stole through the open windows of bedrooms at morning and evening. Dr. Greenlaw sat beneath his oak tree late one afternoon, in a somewhat melancholy mood. "'The year will soon be over,' he said to himself. "'Strange that I am unable to spread the magic carpet, that I send no spy across the walls of the magic city.' He glanced through the papers he held on his knee. He opened one that bore no name. He leaped to his feet with a suppressed sound. Within was the black imprint of a hoof, a goat's hoof, neat, small, and cloven. He brought the paper close, his fingers trembling. "'It is a jest,' he said to himself, "'or is it the word of the wood?' Now he noticed a few lines of verse, faintly scribbled at the bottom of the page. He read them. I sat me down to write for you, and write for you I did. And now, across the close-knit page, my written words are hid beneath an unexpected hoof that stamped itself unbid. Burbage, beyond a doubt, said Greenlaw. But Burbage writing verse? and trampled by the cloven hoofs of spring? At the conclusion of the next class, Greenlaw asked Burbage to wait. Burbage lingered warily. "'My dear boy,' said the teacher, curving about a chair, "'what is the meaning of this?' Young Burbage, with an eye remoter than Arabia, answered, "'If they dance below your window, sir, why cannot they dance across my page?' There was a pause, a long pause, rich in mysterious things. "'I am not doubting you, foolish boy,' said Dr. Greenlaw at last. "'I merely ask how it happened.' "'I fell asleep, I dare say. When I awoke, the mark was there.' Dr. Greenlaw was on his feet, walking up and down the classroom with his hands up, as though holding something to his lips. The boy sent a piercing look after him. There ensued another remarkable pause. The teacher became quiet and pursued his eager inquiry. "'Have you had other intimations of them?' "'Not before you came.' The youth gave a long sigh. "'But this spring, five or six times!' "'What other marks have they left?' The teacher put an impetuous hand on Burbage. The boy considered the question perplexed. He could not answer it directly, but he pulled a notebook out of his pocket and handed it to Dr. Greenlaw. The doctor seized it and read, The goat that rubbed my knees last night and left his ancient smell maddened my heart that I was what a horned goat could tell. 
for if his favor singled me out of the passing crowd, I know I'm not too well disguised, not yet too worldly proud. Most difficult it is to-day beneath a coat and vest, I feared my old identity might fade with all the rest. But I'll go back to hill and sky, and hold a colloquy. I need those ancient presences, whose tumult still is me. Dr. Greenlaw smiled in a way one hardly dared to look at. It had the brightness of the sun. "'I'm glad you caught the real language of the goat,' he said. "'The goat, like the lizard and the lion, speaks in the tongue of dreams.' Burbage walked over to the open window and sniffed the breeze. "'Speak,' said Dr. Greenlaw, dropping into his chair. The boy went on, with no change of posture. When spring came on, why did the satyrs dance, and who were they? Last night I thought a satyr danced in me. The curtains of a hundred centuries were drawn away, and as he stood revealed I started, for the satyr's limbs were mine. Dr. Greenlaw smiled again. The satyr, too, has been misunderstood, he said. One strain more, brother, and I shall be satisfied. I'll tell you of an adventure. And the boy began, Oh, the night was mist and folded, and my body wasn't molded to resist it, so it twisted, so it tiptoed down the stairs, and on the porch I found it unawares. Absolutely true, interrupted Greenlaw imperiously. Go on. The mist was dense and blinded me, the mist was silk and winded me, oh, it was everywhere upon me, folding me and holding me. So I laughed and I danced and I wept and I sung, and I kissed the leaves where syringas hung. Dr. Greenlaw rose and took the boy in his arms. Another star has risen, he said. You are mad, charmingly, evasively mad. I have sown it, the ancient seed. Now nothing can do you hurt. Now you will grow. You will throw this head back and sing like a myriad birds. You will bellow like—but enough. A shade of sadness went across his face. I must go. The boy searched his teacher's ancient eyes, chilled by the words. Go away? Yes, for nothing now remains to do, he replied. The boy stood silent. Where will you go? Up and down the earth, answered Greenlaw. Shall I go with you? No, lad. The boy's eyes filled with tears. I shall come back, said Greenlaw softly. With a tremendous cry of liberation, and before Burbage knew what he was about, Dr. Greenlaw had leaped through the open window and was gone. Burbage stood riveted to the floor. A moment later he rushed to the window, but his strange teacher had disappeared. The boy searched the ground to see where he had alighted, and when he found the marks, he remained a long time, staring. 
You've been listening to The Professor of Dreams by Haniel Long, first published in 1922. If you're interested in reading more of his stories, you might check out his collection Notes for a New Mythology, in which it is included. I'm Richard Figge, and this has been For Reading Out Loud. I hope you'll join me again next week. In the meantime, be well, be happy, stay safe, because you're important. All the best. Thank you.